hi, everybody. This is Matt. This is James Kennedy. Oh, I'm sorry. I should have said this is Matt Bird. Hi, everybody. This is Matt Bird. And this is James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Our wonderful theme music from Haddon Kime. You know, I love my other podcast, Marvel Reading Club, but I never loved the music. And we paid like $50 for some internet music. And I've been meaning to go back to Haddon and go like, Haddon, you got to give me more of that sweet, sweet podcast music. He also did the music for my wife's podcast, one of my wife's podcasts. I need to complete the set. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't you go with Haddon from the beginning for your Marvel podcast? We didn't want to pay any money. We paid him for this podcast and we were we were on the cheap. I put Steve in charge of getting the music and he spent $50 on some internet music and I've never loved it. We paid, had a whopping $200 for his music for this podcast. That was more than worth it. Yeah, totally. Indeed. Um, we love Haddon. So James, it's been a long time since we recorded an episode. How have you been? Uh, I've been good. I had some cancer scraped off my face. What? Uh, that was good. Yeah, yeah. Oh if, my gosh. Uh, like, Heather was like, hey, what's that thing on your face? I was like, I don't know. And she said, go take a look. Have dermatologists take a look at it. They said, that's cancer. And so ah. they went and they they scraped it off. They said, go to the Northwest. You're in Chicago. Go to the Northwestern Skin Cancer Institute. And do this process, which like they take off a layer and they check to see if there's still cancer. They take off another layer, check to see if there's still cancer. And they go layer after layer to see if it's still there. My dad had this on his nose and they went all the way down to the cartilage. Like his ah. nose wasn't there anymore. They had to reconstruct it out of like, like skin taken from elsewhere off his body. Me, I, I, the doctor walked in. He took one look at me. He said, you're a one layer guy. He said <laughs> that before he did anything. And I almost felt like I had wasted my time. You know, like, oh, geez, you know, like, I, if I'm going to come in, at least take two or three layers off. You know, I, I could have let this go for a while. But then after I did it, I went to, this is downtown, like right, right on Michigan Avenue is where the place was. And so I went to like Stan's Donuts afterwards. I was, I was walking back to my car and I was like, as I was getting my donut, I just wanted to tell everybody, I've just had a procedure. I, I, I'm a cancer survivor. You know, like I, I wanted, like there was, I was, I was like getting coffee, and a woman was like, we were both like getting cream at the same time. We we're talking. About it. I just wanted, to, and I had like a big like bandage on the side of my face. I was just like, yeah, cancer. Oh, it's a, you know, it'll get you. The thing is, I was never in any danger, but I really wanted to steal that valor. You know, at that moment, you're in the um, club now. You're in this. You, you get to play the C card. You get to do it all the time. There's all <laughs> sorts of things you can get out of now. You're like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't do that thing I told you I would do. I had cancer, and <laughs> it's amazing what you can get away with now. It, it, it couldn't be milder. Okay, well, I guess we should go ahead and get started. So, James, <laughs> what are we going to talk about tonight? I don't know, Matt. It seems that you have had some interactions with a certain AI lately. I have. So, I wanted to do an episode on AI. Now, this ended up being very timely. People are just starting to discover the amazing things that AI can do, especially the stuff that AI images can do. So, there's this thing called DAL-E, and you can go and you can write in a text string, like, oh, um, a, a toad on the moon. And then you'll get back like four or five wonderful pictures of a toad on the moon. You can say a toad on the moon, but done like 8-bit style or a toad on the moon done, uh, you know, a crayon style, a toad on the moon done like digital art style. And it'll do it in those styles. Um, and it, and it's, it's very impressive that it can do it, but it's just scraping from, you know, millions of other art, like actual human artists, representations of toads and of the moon and just kind of putting them together and saying look i did a new thing this has led to this huge backlash of artists going like 
no, these things that will do an AI image of you, they're just taking a bunch of copyrighted art, uncompensated from artists, and they are putting it all in a blender and chewing it up and spitting it back out. But sometimes when it spits it back out, you can still see the original signature of the original artist still on the supposedly brand new piece of art that the AI has made and has mm -hmm. chopped up. And artists are going through the databases of these AIs and finding like, that's my art, that's my art that I was not paid for, that they are violating my copyright on, that is being used to do these, you know, frankly, amazing AI portraits that people are creating of themselves. Uh -huh. And I was a little bit ahead of the curve on all this because I, you know, I've mentioned a little bit in the last two episodes that I spent most of this year working for Facebook and they called me up because they said, we are doing a project that involves AI generated stories and we are trying to teach the AI how to tell good stories. And so we are trying to program your book, The Secrets of Story, into the AI. And then we want to and then we figured, hey, why don't we just hire Matt Bird? So then they called me up and I was available and I went to work for them and I worked for them for nine months. I made a lot of money and then they ran out of money. This was right before the big layoffs at Facebook, uh, but I was part of the first wave, as they say, and now I am no longer working for them. But one of the final things that I did for them, what ended up happening was at first they were like, we're trying to create this sort of fantasy thing to sort of create fantasy characters. I think I can say that much. And there will be an AI element to it. So let's program it with your story. But then they said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Part of this is we need to do some world building for this fantasy world we're creating. And specifically the boss said, we may need to do some light world building. <laughs> and I said, yeah, there is no such thing as light world building. That's, that's heavy, heavy a big part of writing is one of the heaviest parts of writing is world building. Worlds are heavy. And so then we hired Lou Anders, who had been a previous guest on this podcast, who is an expert at world building. And uh -huh. we ended up spending just months and months and months creating this big, wonderful fantasy world. That could... But this is like mechanical Turk shit, right? Because like it wasn't the AI who was making so it. None you of guys this... were making it. None of this had anything to do with AI. At this point, we had right. completely abandoned AI. We left behind. Meanwhile, some of our programmers were doing amazing things with AI that were unconnected to what we were doing. It was only finally in the last couple of months I was working on the project that he is, we were starting to complete the world building part of the process. And he's like, oh, crap, that's not what we hired you for. Let's go ahead and have you do some of what you were hired for. So I spent a week doing an AI project that then I turned into 10 blog posts that now I'm turning into a podcast episode where he said, let's actually teach your checklist to the AI. So this took a massive amount of time because when you are putting data into an AI, this is not an image AI, this is a text AI. When you are putting data into an AI, you have to format it exactly correctly in a very sort of repetitive way. And it took me forever to go back and format all my data. For those of you who don't know, over the course of the early years of my blog, I generated a 122-question checklist, the ultimate story checklist, that you can ask about your story before you try to sell it. And these are questions about, oh, do I have a good hook? And, oh, you know, are these strong characters? And you answer these 122 questions, and each one helps you rewrite. And I went ahead, and I've run 
30 movies through the checklist. And I've run these on the blog where it's like, hey, check see, check and see how this movie answered all 122 questions. And I did that 30 times. And then I made a massive spreadsheet of how these one, how these 30 movies answered these 122 questions. So I had this data. So I had a massive amount of data to play with in OpenAI. And I decided, well, I'm not going to do all 122 questions. I'm just going to do the first 62 questions, the questions about concept, character, and structure. And I'm going to go ahead and for each of these 62 questions, enter in the 30 answers I have, and then see if I can generate six new answers. So I chose six movies that I'd thought about analyzing. I'd never gotten around to analyzing. And I said, well, let me see if the AI can analyze it. And I went to some easy movies and some hard movies. I said, well, let's go ahead and start with an easy movie. So I said, Back to the Future. That's, it's amazing. I've never done Back to the Future. It's such an easy layup. You know, I've always thought about doing it. I'm like, okay, if the AI can do anything, it can handle Back to the Future. And then I'm like, okay, now let me think of some really hard movie, you know, a really weird movie, a really artistic movie that it would take a sophisticated, nuanced understanding to understand. I'm like, well, what about 2001 A Space Odyssey? You know, that's a weird movie. And then I said, okay, well, let me go and do a movie that would be somewhat easier to do, but is newer because I suspected it might have a harder time with newer movies. So I did Coda, the Best Picture winner from two years ago about uh, Child of Deaf Adults, Coda being the acronym for Child of Deaf Adults. Then I said, well, let me do one of my favorite movies, Harold and Maude, which is a bit more of a quirky movie. I then said, well, I was thinking specifically of you, James. I said, let me do another weirder movie and a movie that specifically, you know, I knew this whole thing would be good podcast fodder, and I knew you would be incensed <laughs> at the whole notion of, and AI trying to understand these things. So I said, let me do Under the Skin, because I think James is going to demand that I put something very artistic in there. And then I said, uh -huh. just to really throw it for a loop, let me see if it can handle something like Roger and me. Let me see if it can handle a documentary. So I went ahead, for each of these 62 questions, I had to put in the question, colon, one of my 30 movies, colon, that movie's answer. And then go through and do that for each of the 30 movies, and then I would just type in question, colon, one of the new movies, Back to the Future, colon, and then return, and then see what happened. And then, but as I went on, I also realized that if I did not tell it a movie, it would generate its own movie. And Interesting. that was really fascinating because it did a very good job guessing the sort of movies I would want to see analyzed. But first, right. I was just doing these six movies. And uh, just to be clear. Yeah. The AI never watched these movies. The, so I made no attempt to make the AI watch these movies. I did not go. I did not. I mean, that would be interesting if an AI could watch a movie and come to conclusions. Nor did you give them like the shooting script, like the final script to these movies. No, I would. The even AI know how to... is right. So the AI is making its answers based on like all like it's got this huge I don't know, treasure chest of human wisdom to draw upon from just like scraping the internet for years and years about everything that everybody has said about back to the future it's just taking what everybody from you know 2000 from like i don't know 1997 onward has said about back to the future that it's been able to scrape the internet and synthesizing response to your questions based on that not based on watching the movie but based on everything it's scraped from the internet what other people have said about that right well, I mean, I frequently refer to the AI as the gifted but lazy kid. You're so gifted at bullshitting. You're so gifted at coming up with answers that make you sound smart, 
but I can tell you didn't do the work. I can tell you didn't uh-huh. actually watch this movie. And you're gl- trying to glean so much from the back of the VHS box. You're trying to, I mean, obviously it's like, all right, let me quickly, you know, it didn't even spend a lot of time doing this. It quickly scanned to the Wikipedia entry for a lot of these movies. And it just kept getting stuff. That's wrong. all it did. That's all it, it did. It thinks, but that's the thing though, is that a lot of these answers were just uncannily good. There were a lot of really good answers where they where it really seemed to understand my concepts, even when they were tricky concepts. And it was giving but, me very good the, answers. The, and then there were a lot of answers where it was just spectacularly bad. Right. Um, I mean, the fact that it was good is just like that's more a function of the e- the the triviality of the question <laughs> and the the richness of the data set just to make it clear nobody on its side is doing any understanding it's mechanically rearranging words in the data set uh to try to satisfy your question but it's it's not actually understanding anything it gives a good impression of understanding things no but this is like the, the, i mean you've heard about the 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 chinese box problem right no what's that this is a famous problem in AI. So like you have a box, somebody writes a question to the box, a normal person, they put it in the box. That question is translated. I don't know if I'm getting this totally correct, but I think I'm getting it just correct, is translated mechanically into Chinese. And it's given to a person inside the box. That person, even though they're a normal person, they have to just follow a bunch of you know mechanical rules in which they see this thing that's written in Chinese, a language that they don't know. And then they craft a response also in Chinese, a language that they don't know based on a bunch of rules that they've been given and they send it out, but they don't know any Chinese. So they don't know what the question was. And they don't know what the answer is that they gave because it's all in Chinese and they speak English. They're just like, you know, doing a bunch of, they're just executing a bunch of rules. And John Searle, the guy who, the philosopher who made up this problem, was like, that's the position that computers are in. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand the meaning of anything. They're just executing a bunch of rules. And the, the Chinese box kind of brings that into kind of like, so you could say, oh, it seems like it understands. And then like in a lazy, sentimental way, you might say, and so I think the computer does understand, but it doesn't. And anybody who's programmed a computer know that it knows that it doesn't. Like that it's, it's just they kind of very mechanically applying rules or statistical analysis to what it, to what, you know, the, the program thinks that you want. Um, well, and- I mean, Kurt Vonnegut said, be careful what you pretend to be because that's what you really are. And I think there that- is no you in the computer. There is no you. Okay. I'm not even going to try to speak. Okay. Go on. Be careful what you pretend you are. So because if the computer keeps pretending to be human at a certain extent, it starts to seem human. And then you're like, the the number one question with these things is, we're trying to create a fantasy world. We're trying to create, you know, an enjoyable fantasy game using AI. And one of the things we did a lot of, I like creating spreadsheets. And I would create these massive spreadsheets of all the data about our fantasy world. And then we would ask it questions about the fantasy world. And it would come up with genuinely interesting fiction about the fantasy world. It would come up with really interesting stuff that we had not put into it and it was going through and it had access to the whole history of all fantasy literature and it was mashing it up and mixing and matching it and giving us 
new quote-unquote fantasy content that, of course, was sort of masticated fantasy content from thousands of stories. But I'm like, how is that different from what we do? How is that different from what anybody does? I mean, you have seen that there was someone in The New Yorker who was writing about AI poetry and tried playing around with OpenAI and said, told it, write a poem in the style of Philip Larkin about cryptocurrency. And it created a really impressive poem in the style of Philip Orkin about cryptocurrency. But I looked it up here. This is the poem. This is by far the most impressive, the most impressive thing I think any AI has ever turned out. That a guy from The New Yorker said, you know, put in a bunch of Philip Orkin poems and then said, typed out into AI, here is a Philip Orkin poem about cryptocurrency. And this is mm -hmm. the poem that the AI wrote. It said, the invention, money is a thing you earn by the sweat of your brow. And that's how it should be. Or you can steal it and go to jail, or inherit it and be set for life, or win it on the pools, which is luck, or marry it, which is what I did. And that is how it should be, too. But now this idea has come up of inventing money just like that. I ask you, is nothing sacred? That's the poem. It's good. It's good. It's really it good. And you're like, this is truly amazing. And then you're like, yes, but we know these things aren't actually smart. We know they can't actually think. We know this is just garbage in and garbage out. But how is it creating something that is genuinely good, a genuinely good poem? And you're realizing, like, how is this different from what we're all doing? You know, we are all, every writer has just absorbed thousands of hours of fantasy and science fiction material, has read tens of thousands of pages of fantasy and science fiction material, and then when it comes time to create fantasy and science fiction material, is drawing on that base, is drawing on that that core. People are drawing, first and foremost, on Tolkien. Tolkien was drawing entirely on things that he had previously absorbed. Is there anything in Tolkien? People criticize J.K. Rowling for going, like, famously... A.S. Byatt, critical of those books, going like, oh, it's just, you know, entirely made up of existing fantasy tropes that are being mixed and matched. That was all Tolkien was doing. That's all anybody has been doing is, you know, how many fantasy writers actually come up with original stuff, something that doesn't have any familiar creatures or races in it. You can. This is this yeah. mechanistic. This is so masochistic. Like th that, and this is like the weird error of our time that we demand to be thought of as machines. Like, and we are looking for any way in which we can characterize ourselves as machines. And there's a certain kind of personality type that, like, really loves to say, like, "Oh, and we're just like machines. See, like this and like that." And there's like always a little bit of dishonesty in the way that they present their case look oh oh jk rowling was just like remixing things and J.R.R. tolkien was remixing things so therefore we're all computers it, it was all mechanistic in the end and i reject that i don't think that's true and i know it's very fashionable to say like oh look all these computers are doing these these kind of amazing things and, and you know i want to be ahead of the curve so i'm just gonna i'm gonna hit myself before the bully can hit me and say I too am a machine. And that is like the weird universal impulse of, I don't know, 2005 onwards. And I disagree with it. I don't think it's true. I disagree with it too. Let me be clear. I just, I think it's, I think it's a fascinating idea to consider and to 
push against. I think it's a fascinating idea of going like... You were trying to make the case for it as much as possible just a minute ago. I wasn't making the case for it. I was proposing that it is a possibility. I don't see a, a computer writing Roald Dahl or, or J.K. Rowling or, or you know, Tolkien or, or whatever. Um, and the thing is, like, maybe they could. Maybe if you fed a computer all of Roald Dahl's books and stuff and then it said write another Roald Dahl book, it could, it could write a book, it maybe, that could fool some people. But it could not write the first Roald Dahl book. You know right. what I mean? Right. Uh, um, and, and this is all going to be, in the end, just a mechanical, uh, increasingly ingenious and increasingly kind of hidden and, and increasingly kind of like, oh, how did it do that? And, and astonishing. But in the end, always mechanical rearrangement of things that has always already been given. Yes. Um, and it's always going to be parasitic like you said about the art on things that humans have already made. And the interesting thing about poems is that 80% of it happens in the mind of the reader. Yes. And it kind of, it kind of depends on the goodwill of the reader more than a novel does. Yes. A, a novel, I would say 70% of it is on the page and 30% of it depends on the goodwill of the reader. But for a poem, you could write something that's almost completely incomprehensible and and then just like give it to somebody and it, it might not for everybody but for some people it might be like i'm gonna think about that for the rest of my life because most of what happens in a poem is in the reader's imagination huh. which is uh, as opposed i think to uh, an essay or a novel or something that's more kind of like directly rational wouldn't you say yes i think that's true i think that's an excellent point okay so let's look at some of the things that you said like you say like uh, for instance like you, you've got a bunch of questions that you ask of stories, such as, does the hero adopt a corrected philosophy after the spiritual crisis uh, three quarters of the way into the story? You ask the computer about, say, 2001 and Space Odyssey. And the computer says, we'll blow it the fuck into, out into space. We have to stick together. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, let me, let me go ahead and explain this. So, you know, so one of my questions when I ask about structure is, does the hero adopt a corrected philosophy after the spiritual crisis three quarters of the way into the story? I had to rephrase the question a little bit so that the, so that the computer would hopefully be able to understand it. And then I put in these 30 answers of various movies, including amongst the movies I put in, Alien and Education and Blazing Saddles. So then it then, it just wants to please me. The AI just wants to make me happy. And it wants to give me good answers. And sometimes it gives me remarkably good answers. Sometimes it gives me remarkably bad answers. And sometimes it gives me weaselly answers. So on this one, I said, does the hero adopt a correct philosophy after the spiritual crisis three quarters of the way in the story? It says, back to the future. No, he retreats to his previous personality flaw. I'm like, well, that's an interesting answer. I'm not sure if that's true. I'd have to think about it. I go into the next movie. I asked it about 2001 A Space Odyssey. And this time it says, yes. It says, yes, the hero does adopt a correct philosophy. We'll blow it the fuck out into the space. We have to stick together. Like going, no, that is not a line from 2001 A Space Odyssey. That is the corrected philosophy in Alien. And it is going like, well, you gave me that. You said that was corrected philosophy in Alien. And I know Alien and 2001 are both sci-fi movies. So maybe I figured they had the same corrected philosophy. Maybe we'll blow it the fuck out into space is also from 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's like, no. Yeah, it tries to blow the astronaut out into space. Okay, so then we moved on to Coda and it said, yes, she does adopt correct philosophy. She says, I'd love to live someplace like this. That's all you need, isn't it? And I'm like, no, that's from an education, <laughs> which, okay, these are both coming of age movies. Okay, so then I say, in Roger and Me, 
they does it adopt does the hero Roger me adopt Kirk Bosby? It says yes, he must bring the workers and the townspeople together. And I'm like, well, I guess that sort of makes sense. But I'm like, wait just a second. That's what I said about Blazing Saddles. And you're yeah. like, well, these are both movies about rich men trying to ruin towns. So you have, yeah. you know, Hedley Lamar trying to ruin a town. And then you've got Roger Smith trying to ruin a town. And, you know, it's like. The, the, yeah, the, the, the finger from the cure. <laughs> probably. That's um. <laughs> uh, Robert Smith. So it would be, those were sort of the comically incorrect answers it would give where it was just it was just being pitiful it was just pitifully twisting in the wind and i was making it do things and then another thing that kept happening is that it kept trying to rewrite the movies to be more hollywood than they were i was intentionally mm-hmm. giving it sort of non-hollywood movies and it was saying like it kept going back with roger and me does he have a critical it says yes he wants to save his job well no he doesn't he never worked for gm uh his father did but his father's retired and it says later it says you know, is this universal? It says, yes, we've all felt like our jobs are in danger and we've all had to deal with difficult family situations, but this is on a bigger scale. It's like, um, he doesn't have, if he has a family, it's not mentioned in the movie. At one point it says, what does this challenge represent to the hero? It says, the challenge represents his greatest hope of finding a job, his greatest fear of not being able to find a job, an ironic answer to his question of whether or not he'll be able to find a job. Like, nope, he is never once trying to get a job with, with GM in the movie. At one point, I say, does the hero's problem become undeniable at the beginning of the movie? It says, the hero's problem, being unemployed, becomes undeniable due to a social humiliation at the beginning of the story. In parentheses, when he is laughed at by his wife and kids for not having a job. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, you could just picture the AI just going like, rewriting Roger and me. If you had had an AI write Roger and me in the first place, it would have mm-hmm. said like, okay, well, clearly we need a story. You know, we need a moment where our hero is laid off from GM and is desperately trying to get his job back. And then he is laughed at by his wife and kids for not having a job. And then he decides, I'm going to try to find the CEO of General Motors, Roger Smith, and get him to come to Flint and get him to reopen our plants. And then presumably at the end, he would succeed and Roger Smith would come there and reopen the plant and everybody would be happy at the end. There was another bit where it would get stuff just hilariously wrong at times. I said, does the hero have a moment of humanity early on? Roger and me. Yes, the hero has a moment of humanity early on when he is trying to find a way to save his job. He is lost and confused, and he stumbles upon a kind stranger, Roger Smith, who helps him find his way. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, dear God, no. <laughs> there were other funny answers it had where it was like, I was like, does the hero's problem become undeniable due to a social humiliation at the beginning of the story? Back to the future. Yes, he's humiliated by his father in front of everybody at the school dance. And <laughs> not true. Not yeah. true. Um, and I said in response to that, ha, it's as if the AI distantly remembers these movies but can't recall it properly on the pop quiz. At one point, uh, well, then, same question 2001 A Space Odyssey. It says, yes, Dave is humiliated by his fellow astronauts when he can't figure out how to work the computer. um and i bet like somebody like you would say like oh you should put a scene in like that to more to humanize dave bowman you know and kind of make us more bond with him like it's a believe karen invest moment well definitely the ai had trouble with irony and had a hard time grasping the concept of irony and that is the sort of irony it would prefer it would be like oh isn't it ironic that the same guy who got laughed at by his coworkers for being unable to work the computer then is the only one who can stand up to the computer and disable it once it starts killing 
everybody but him presumably that is the sort of that is the sort of cheap irony it wishes it could add to the story so we're getting sort of this not only frightening glimpse we're getting a frightening glimpse at sort of the incompetence of ai today and it's like oh i hope people aren't trusting anything to this because a lot of the work it's doing is incompetent here but we're also getting sort of frightening glimpses of what life is going to be like once the ai is writing the stories and also and what what somebody who is thoughtlessly implementing your checklist would do yes but sometimes you would say things that were responses to the ai that i disagreed with like your question do the stakes pace and motivation all escalate in the third quarter back to the future the ai says yes doc is shot marty has to get the delorean up to 88 miles per hour he has to get back to the future well two-thirds of that you write that's a good answer but it's not like Doc is shot and Marty has to get the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour. All happens in like the first 15 minutes of the movie, you know? Um, like- well, yeah, he's got to do the DeLorean up again. Yeah, no, I mean, I was uh, I was maybe being overly generous on my grading scale. <laughs> so another interesting thing that happened while I was working through this is as anytime you're working with an AI, AIs are temperamental and I would get a good answer and then I would try to recreate it. You know, they say that all good science is replicable, that if you run the same experiment multiple times, the same thing will happen. When that's uh-huh. never true of AI, that AI, uh-huh. you try to get it to repeat something that it did. So like one of the best answers it gave me is, you know, it was always good when it would give me an answer. I'd be like, oh, I guess I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't have said that, but I guess that is right. That's better than what I would have thought or what I would have said. So for instance, mm-hmm. I asked, is at least one actual human being opposed to what the hero is doing. And so the first, when I first was not, when I hadn't digested all of my old data yet, mm-hmm. and I was just entering stuff manually, I went ahead and I entered some questions manually, and then I asked my Back to the Future, and it said, I asked, is at least one actual human being opposed to what the hero is doing? And it said, Back to the Future, no, not really. Biff is sort of an antagonist, but he's more of a bully than anything else. And I was like, oh, at first I heard that. I'm like, that's not true. Biff's an antagonist. I'm realizing like, no, Biff's not really an antagonist. Biff is not trying to keep him from getting his parents back together. Biff is not trying to keep him from returning to the future. Biff never has any idea what's going on. Biff is just a bully. He's not really an antagonist in the story. He's not someone who is trying to stop the hero in any way from doing what the hero needs to do. And I was like, okay, that's a really good answer. And then I went ahead and put in more of my data into the thing and then i asked that question again and it gave me a much lamer question because once it had more of knowing the sort of answers i wanted it gave me more of the sort of answer that i would have expected instead Mm -hmm. of giving me you know actually giving me something that was more thoughtful and making me say oh you know you've made me think on this that's not that's not what i would have expected and the more data i gave it the more likely it was to say what I would have automatically thought. So, you know, when I did it again, it just said, yes, Biff. <laughs> and I'm like, mm-hmm. no, no, you were doing so well. And I do wonder if if I would have gotten better answers if I had entered in less data, if I had made it think more on its feet instead of being very clear about what I wanted from it. Yeah. So it was interesting when the AI started to mix and match movies. Like yes. you wrote, like, do the stakes, pace, and motivation all escalate in the third quarter? And for Under the Skin, the AI said, oh, yes, the stakes are are now life and death as the protagonist tries to figure out how to destroy the rogue computer. How? 
<laughs> you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's like the folly of all of this, because it's just drawing from everything that everybody has ever said about these movies, but it's never watched these movies. So it can never truly have an insight. And so it can, it can by chance, write something as an output that you might say, oh, that seems to be an insight because the real mental work is happening in your mind, not its mind. And, and like taking some kind of nomic or enigmatic thing that it said and kind of like, you know, connecting the poles of the battery with your mind and making it work. But the computer doesn't know what it's saying. And occasionally it would give like, you know, a really smart sounding answer. Like it would say, does the challenge become something that is not just hard for the hero to do an obstacle, but hard for the hero to want to do a conflict? And it would say, Roger, me. Yes, because he has to confront the reality of his own life and the lives of those around him. And I, my first thought is like, oh, that's a really good answer. And then I think mm -hmm. that's true of every single movie. <laughs> like, yeah. You would have a hard time fighting a movie in which it is not true that the hero has to confront the reality of his own life and the lives of those around him. I mean, sometimes you accepted answers from the AI that weren't even correct. Like for, does the hero discover an intimidating opportunity to fix a problem? For 2001, uh, the AI says, yes. The hero discovers an intimidating opportunity to fix a problem when he is offered a chance to travel to Jupiter and find out what happened to the missing crew of the ship Discovery. And you wrote, sure, good answer. That's not what happened. There was no missing crew of the ship Discovery. I don't even like you were grading the AI on a curve. You just like said, fuck it. Yeah, that sounds great. But like, that's not even right. What you said. Right? I haven't seen that movie in a long time. That sounded there's, right. There is no missing crew. There's no I ship. I thought there was. I thought there was some mission that had, had not reported no, back or something. No, there there was a... They, they go... <laughs> we start at the dawn of man. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, was, apes, <laughs> the apes was, find a monolith, right? The, 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 the monolith basically teaches them how to use tools. We they, they throw the jawbone up into the air or whatever. It's a space station. Now we're way into the future. And then, like, they... They, they say, oh, there's something happening on the moon. We got we have to go dig for it. They go, they dig for it. Oh, my God, it's another monolith. It sends a signal out to Jupiter. And so they decide to have a, a mission to go out to Jupiter. There was no mission that went out to Jupiter before them. This brings us to one of my favorite answers. I said, does the concept contain an intriguing, ironic contradiction? And so it starts with an answer about Back to the Future. Yes, a teenager is sent back in time to meet his parents when they were teenagers. I'm like going, I guess that's kind of ironic. I'm not sure that's ironic. And then it said, then it gave an answer that was ironic. It said that, yes, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the most advanced beings in the universe are killed by a primitive man using a bone. <laughs> <laughs> my, a uh, dot... My, my daughters asked me to read stuff from your blog before I went online today, and I, they've both seen 2001, and they both really laughed at that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I was like, that is ironic. You know, there are times when I'm like, a computer cannot understand irony. I'm like, that is ironic that the most advanced beings <laughs> in the universe are killed by a permanent fan using a phone. However, that does not, not happen, happen in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, another thing like doesn't happen. Like you, like you wrote, is a hero's great flaw. Ironically, the natural flip side of a great strength we admire. For Back to the Future and 2001: Space Odyssey, the computer says no. You write, I disagree in both cases, but I don't see how you can. In Back to the Future, there is no great flaw that is a natural flip side of a great strength we admire. I mean, 
what, what is Marty McFly's great flaw that is ironic? The, the computer was right there. Like, why did you say, I disagree? That's interesting. I was always sort of impressed when the computer would answer no, because I'm like, it takes a little bit of courage to say no. It's easy enough to just say yes and sort of fudge an answer. But when they're going like, no, that's more definitive. And they're like, uh-huh. if the time I'm giving them, but- it said yes on most questions. So if they're like going, no, I don't think so. So I was always sort of impressed, but I was never impressed when it just said no. But I would say in Back to the Future, he has a great flaw. I would say his great flaw is his low self-esteem or his... He doesn't have a low self-esteem. I mean, he's... He doesn't have a flaw, and that's why they created one in two and three, that he can't be bare for anybody to call him a chicken. Yeah. like, But he has no flaw. In, I mean, that's kind of what makes him so compelling. He doesn't have a flaw. He like is just a great guy who solves the problem. Um, but I mean, he's clearly got a problem. He's got a huge problem in that, you know, like he's... You know, he can't take his girlfriend, you know, out in the car because his dad's such a loser and got his car wrecked. So that's a problem. But you're no, no, that's that an exterior that problem. That is he in no way, internal problem. It's in no way his fault. He did nothing right. wrong to make that happen. He doesn't have a flaw or a strength. He, or, I mean, in, I mean, he has a strength. He's just like a guy who gets shit done. He doesn't have a flaw. It's the flip side of a strength. And the computer accurately said no. And you said, I disagree. And you said, next question. But <laughs> so like, I, <laughs> I think there's a case to be made. There's a case to be made for what you're saying. 2001, you feel like Dave doesn't have a flaw? Dave doesn't show up until like, three, like a halfway through the movie. Like, Dave is not the main character of 2001. The, but, for the first... For, at first, it's a bunch of fucking apes. And then after that, it's Haywood Floyd, who's a bureaucrat, who's hanging out with Russians and then giving a long meeting and then hanging out in... like We do not we do not meet Dave Bowman, Keir Dullia's character, until half the movie is over. He is not the main character. The main character of 2001 is, is humanity. Okay. And humanity... Well, humanity certainly has a great flaw. But, uh... But... <laughs> right. That, I mean, well, I mean, it, it, it's not... I mean, what is... I mean, but it, it might, in, in our view, but, like, in terms of 2001, it doesn't have a great flaw. Basically, 2001 is about uh, humanity learns how to use tools, and then, at the end, it learns how to let tools go. Right? Yes. That's what it's about. And so, it's not about flaws. It's not about, like kind of an like Aristotelian kind of like, it's not about hubris or anything like that. It's it's a much bigger and broader and more cosmic thing. This, it just said, no, it was correct, but with no insight. And then you said, I disagree, which was incorrect and even less insight. <laughs> yes, I agree. You've made a case for why it was actually correct to say no in both those cases. I wish it had made that case as strongly and forcefully as you just did. But strongfully, strongfully, <laughs> everything about this AI, in, insofar as it's given interesting answers, less than ten percent of the time, and it is a, a game. It's a, it's a, it's not something that I think anybody has any reason to be afraid of. There's no insight here. There, there is nothing that caused me to sit up and say, "Wow, how did it think that?" And then, as somebody who is actually programmed. I knows how these things work. I know it's just a bunch of mechanical processes and there's no genie in there that suddenly comes to life and is thinking like it's even less impressive. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's fascinating. I found the whole thing fascinating. I found it really entertaining. I was like, Mm -hmm. just the whole time I was putting these answers in, 
and watching it sort of twist in the wind, I just thought was funny. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. like, oh dear God, it's trying so hard. I can feel the sweat dripping from its brow. <laughs> and I was just very impressed. I think it's going to be fascinating to see where this is in 10 years. I think it has progressed a huge amount in the last 10 years. Certainly Dali, the image generation is, you know, and this is ironic. This is, I think, exactly the opposite of what I would have assumed five years ago. I would have assumed that computers would master text AI before they could even get started on painting AI. You know? I disagree 100%. I think like with all of the images online that could be scraped that are tagged, it's much easier because images don't involve the kind of rearrangement of concepts and depth of thought it's just an image you say toad on the moon and you just find toads you find moons you put them together that is trivial you know fundamentally whereas like trying to work your way through concepts even though it's text which seems like it's more lo-fi is actually a much harder lift yeah well it's interesting the movie that it did worst on certainly was coda which is the most recent movie and Mm -hmm. it just had less mass it just had less weight of things that have been written about this movie had the least even a movie like under the skin you would think people that wasn't a movie that dominated the cultural conversation that wasn't a movie that was huge hit it's not that old but coda i say does the hero's problem become undeniable being the movie it said coda the movie yes the hero's problem being deaf becomes undeniable due to a social humiliation at the beginning of the story when he is laughed at by his classmates when he can't hear the teacher like, okay, that is entirely wrong. The hero <laughs> is female. She is not deaf. There is no scene where she is laughed at by her classmates when she can't hear the teacher. This is just utterly, utterly wrong. Whereas it does shockingly good on a movie like Harold and Maude, which is a cult movie, a niche movie, but it's also a movie that a lot of people have seen and a lot of people um, just due to it being many years since it came out, a lot of people have but written about. It does shockingly you... well on a lot of these things with Roger and me, which you would think it's been programmed mm-hmm. to never say like, I'm sorry, I don't have enough information to answer that question, <laughs> which it should frequently say. And instead it's like, no, 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 I must try. I must try. I must, you know, convince. I can't say to the teacher that I'm sorry I fell asleep last night. I have to pretend that I read the book and I have to pretend I've seen these movies. But wasn't the problem with Coda that like it just thought you meant the concept of a <laughs> a coda and a piece of music? Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, that happened frequently. At first, I couldn't figure out why it was giving me such sort of thoughtful and philosophical answers for Coda that had nothing to do with the movie. And then I realized like, oh, it th- it thinks I'm like giving it a bunch of data and then saying coda colon. And it's saying like, give you a coda, like a mu- piece of music would have a coda, which is to say a summation. And it's saying, you know, I will give you a coda, which is to say a summation of the data you have given me. And they were often really thoughtful answers. And where they had clearly, you know, I say clearly, it had seemingly really thought about what I had told it and the data I had given it. And the coda answers were some of my favorite answers, but had nothing to do with the movie Coda. And then I had to very gradually realize it was giving me a coda for what it was saying. I was shaken enough by these answers that I think that in 10 years, it will be genuinely scary. That there will be, you know, they're already talking about how all of the translators are going to get laid off, that they're going to be replaced by AI translators, how no one is going to be translating any documents anymore. The big horror is if everyone who is doing computer games is just going to not hire any artists anymore, 
and they're just going to be doing AI Dali art. But nothing new will ever happen again then because it'll just be like art based on art, based on art, based on art of like whatever is kind of like, but like nobody will make anything new anymore because there's no reason to. And so it, it would just become a copy of, or I mean, a derivative of a derivative of a derivative of a derivative. And people wonder why does art suck so much? Why does writing suck so much? Well, we can get a computer to do it for nothing. However, it's just based on a derivative of what everybody else has already done. And then a derivative of that. And at a certain point, the computer is just going to start training itself, not just on what people have said, but also on what it has also generated. That I mean, sure, that a lot of the stuff it's trained itself on is already prose that is mechanically produced. Do you think this could all turn very dystopian very quickly? I mean, are you? No, I just, that- I'm not dystopian. I just think it's just like dumb and, and boring. You, you know, uh, uh, but and, that's and not dystopian. Shitty. Dumb and boring isn't. No, I mean, dumb and boring is not dystopia. It doesn't mean that people can't eat. It just means that, like, it's just dumb and stu- it's like idiocracy. It's just like, yeah, oh, we have this good thing. Well, what if we replaced it with something that's slightly cheaper, but it's much more terrible? Okay, we'll take it. You, you know, like, that's not dystopia. It's just dumb. Right? Do you think that's going to happen? Hasn't it happened already in so many other parts of our lives? Yes. <laughs> I mean, so where do you picture this? going in 10 years how do you picture i don't think a computer is going to in 10 years i don't think a computer is going to be writing a novel i I think it might there will be a novel sometime in the next five years that will like chart that was written entirely by a computer and it will chart because it was a curiosity um like that novel that was written that like didn't use the letter e once yes but the people want to hear people and they will like like a, a a child turning up their nose at carrots will just instinctively turn up their nose at something created by a computer. And they, they will just, even if it's not told to them, this is created by a computer, they will know. I am a humanistic person. I believe in humanity. I don't believe in machines. I don't believe in systems. I believe in people. And that's a sentimental idea, I know. It also, people will just don't want that world. Like, who does it benefit? Who does it benefit for all these things to be made, you, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't benefit artists. It doesn't benefit writers. I it mean, benefits like the same technological companies that fuck our lives over in so many other ways, but so ingeniously. So we must, you know, r- respect them. Shouldn't we? We don't have to respect them. We don't have to respect the things that they make. I think that ironically, the thing that's going to save art and the thing that's going to especially save novels in terms of once the AI can write a novel, I think that the thing that's going to save human novelists is that you already have humans who are willing to write novels for nothing. And you've, you've got people who are willing to pay to write novels. Like you've got, uh-huh. you know, 90% of the novels that are published are self-published by people who have actually paid money to publish the novel instead of being paid to publish the novel. Uh-huh. I think that art is in more danger because people are you know, in terms of doing a painting, people are more likely to insist on being paid for a painting than they are to insist on being paid for having written a novel. And Mm -hmm. therefore, everyone who, anybody who is in the habit of being paid is going to be in serious threat of having an AI replace them that doesn't insist on being paid. But people who don't insist on being paid, such as most novelists, then are not in danger of being replaced because they were not insisting on being paid. So this that's, is like, that's the most depressing outcome of all this. This is like the, the thing with all technology. It's all technology coming in and scooping out 
the technology coming in and taking all this work that has been done by others and scraping it for free off the internet where it just happens to be sitting there and then just saying, hey, look what I did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like using and pivoting off of the ingenuity and work of countless others and, and then saying, I, the programmer, did this. And that is gross. Yes. Um, and and, and it, 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 their algorithm would be nothing without like the collective effort of everybody else. The problem of capitalism, the problem the way we work, we think of ourselves now is we can't think of ourselves in a collective anymore. We can only think of ourselves as individuals. And so we can't make, we can't, there's no solidarity and we can't take collective action. And so because of that, computers and technologists can take advantage of it and do these things like that because people don't band together and say, no, we don't want this. That horse has already left the barn because those images are already on the internet. Everybody's text is already on the internet for everybody to take. And the algorithms can go and scan it and make something like it. But it's not the ingenuity of the programmers and it's not the computer being ingenious. It's you and me and it's all of us who made this shit that they are now profiting off of. And we should try to think of ourselves not as individuals, but more collectively, and then maybe we can start to find a way to sort of claw our way back to some kind of dignity. Well, I mean, you see that just starting this week. This week is really the first time I've seen people going like, we need to shut down these AI painting programs because they, we need to go through their databases and find which of our intellectual property is being digested into these things and make copyright mm-hmm. claims on it, which is saying, you know, we should try to legally shut down this whole process. Which really? then, you know, you get a lot of people going like, good luck with that, you know, but I know people are going like, look, we have to do this. We have to come together. And now it's the time to try to stop this or at least establish that it's illegal, establish that this is violation of copyright. I don't think the A to Z of a new technological thing should be, ain't it cool? You know, like I, I think there's got to be a more to it than like, isn't it cool that we can do this? You, you know, I and mean, yeah, it is cool. It's also awful, you, you know, like the, you, you can have, you can put both of those thoughts in your mind at the same time. And um, that's, and they're both all over Facebook this week. Both of those thoughts are all over Facebook. And I think right. that's true. Sometimes things that like a minute ago, nobody even thought would exist are thought of as like kind of essential now. Like people are like, oh, what do we do? Like now that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, like, what do we do? Oh my God, what do we do? Like how we communicate with each other. It's like, bitch, it has it's only existed since two thousand eight. You know, humanity got along fine for thousands of years without Twitter. Like, it's not something that has to exist. We got along, um, in fact, better without Twitter. I, as someone who refused to do Twitter, who has always refused to do Twitter, I cannot tell you how enjoyable this whole thing has been. Yeah, watching, yeah. <laughs> watching Elon Musk take over and watching everybody have to apologize for ever having done it in the first place. And I love how everybody's like, oh, Twitter's going to be bad now. It's like, Twitter was always awful. Twitter uh-huh. was pure <laughs> evil. Like, don't you remember Trump? Twitter created Trump. Like, uh-huh. this is, it's like Trump never would have been elected president without Twitter. And you're just now noticing how bad Twitter is now that Elon Musk has taken over. Like, you should have, everybody should have deleted Twitter the second Trump won. The second that Trump announced his candidacy. So the second that Trump started dominating the conversation using Twitter, everybody showed prop Twitter. And you should be ashamed of yourself for only dropping it now. But yes, you should drop it now. Drop it now. So yes. All right, James. So let's go ahead 
and wrap up this episode. I think we've had a good discussion. I think we have come face to face with some realities. I think generally speaking, we're both, even though I was impressed by this exercise and certainly intrigued enough by this exercise to go ahead and get a 10-part series out of it, I ultimately feel the same way that you do. I feel like this is garbage in, garbage out. I feel like this is ultimately a rather unimpressive showing by the AI. It was amusing. It was interesting. Uh, it was a little bit scary in that I could see how if it got its act together, it could be much more threatening to me and every other creative person. But it's certainly not there yet and is more covered in flop sweat to an amusing degree. But I think that you are less scared than I am. You are saying like, no, this is not going to transform my world. This is not going to be a big threat to my world. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think people love to communicate with and know about other people. And I think after say Sally Rooney has written for Sally Rooney novels. I maybe not now, but maybe like, I don't know, 20 years from now, an AI could maybe write something that like a, an undiscriminating person could say, Oh, that's another Sally Rooney novel, but it's written by an AI, but it could not write the first Sally Rooney novel. Yeah. Um, and, and that is the whole point of a novel is that it's new. That's it's right in the name. And, and like it, it's an advance that happened in a happy because it's an emotional and social and political and aesthetic thing that was happening in a person, and they brought something forth that other people recognized. Now, could that happen with computer out of nothing? Maybe, maybe it could, but I'm not going to bet on it. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't think people would accept it because they would say, "Well, that was written by a computer, so I'm not interested." Yeah, you know they. Uh, I, but of I course, then you get to the Turing test, and would the computers be smart enough to publish their novels without letting anybody know they were computers? I think the way that it will will work out is that people will do things, write novels that are assisted by this technology. They'll write out like a couple of lines of a novel. They don't know what they're going to do, and they'll have the computer like write a couple more lines, and they'll be like, "Oh, that went in a way that I didn't expect. Okay, maybe I'll try that out." You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I could see that. I could see like people, like cyborg novelists, um, <laughs> letting the computer kind of uh, guide them or give them ideas in a way. Like I could see a latter day Roald Dahl, you know, writing the first half of James and the Giant Peach and then asking the computer what would happen next, and the computer giving him like a more interesting answer than maybe he would have thought of, and then him like following that and doing that in his own style. And, and I don't even think that is necessarily invalid because it's no different than talking to your friend and saying, okay, I got them all in this giant peach. They're floating in the ocean. What happens next? And you say, well, what if you get a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, sharks attacking the peach and the, the seagulls pull them out? Well, how does that happen? Well, I don't know. We could do this. At, like, I think like an AI and a friend that you're talking to would have the same effect. Just like, I'm just going to jolt my mind in a different direction. Yeah. And I think that's fine. Okay. But if you say, like, I'm going to write a title, James and the Giant Peach, press a button, and a computer is going to write James and the Giant Peach, I don't think that will happen. Yeah. And you're not, so you're not, you're not losing any sleep over it. I mean, a novelist has already lost all their sleep by just becoming a novelist at all. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. They, they, you don't need one more thing to worry about. You've got enough worries. Yeah, it, it's such a gigantic gamble to, to spend all this time doing something that was such a, you know, a low rate of success that you just have to ignore shit after a while and just do it. What's one um, more risk? 
Yeah, what's one more risk? And also, like, like oh, it's kind of like the equivalent of, like, oh, but don't you know that the Earth will one day be engulfed by the sun? Yeah, I guess. It's not my problem. You know, okay, don't you know that in 100 years from now, an AI might write a novel? Cool, I'll be dead. You know, it doesn't matter. Doesn't uh, matter. And even if it does, people will still appreciate James Kennedy novels. Okay, everybody. I think we're going to wrap up there for Or my novels will be fed into the AI. And somebody say, could you write me another James Kennedy novel? And then the AI will do it. Yes. Uh, then I think that'd be good because I like James Kennedy novels, but I can't in good conscience give James Kennedy any money. And so. <laughs> what? I, I've given you so much money. I've bought your books multiple times for friends. That's uh, that's good. You you know you are in the clear conscience wise giving me money, but you know because of what you did, I can't give you any money because of the cancellation. I can't give you any money, and so I. Wait, what did I do? How did I cancel you? I'm gonna need. Oh, you know what you did. I'm gonna need to have an AI write all my James (laughs) Kennedy books from now on. Very good. Okay. (laughs) All right, everybody. We will try to record episodes of the show more often. We will see you next time. We did it. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.